Hey everyone, it's Aline. We'll get to the show in just a minute, but I wanted to let you in on some exciting news. Less Than or Equal is joining the Geeky Podcasting Network Relay as of right now. I'm really excited to join Relay and help the network become even more diverse. There aren't going to be a lot of changes to the show. You can look forward to the same types of guests and the same exploration of a variety of topics. I'll still provide content warnings if one of the subjects on an episode might be triggering or inappropriate for work or kiddos. You'll still hear the same great bleeping sound when people curse. Because we're redirecting the episode feed, you might notice some duplicate episodes if you use a podcast app. This won't be a problem with new episodes, and if you notice any weirdness with your subscription, try unsubscribing and resubscribing to the Less Than or Equal feed. With that, let's get started with this week's episode. Welcome to Less Than or Equal, the podcast about pursuing equality in geekdom by celebrating the diverse and their accomplishments. I'm your host, Aline Sims, and today I'm really excited to be joined by Lisa Lisa Schmeiser. I know I can say it. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you. I am so happy to be here, and I'm excited. This is our second podcast together this week. Is it? <laughs> very excited about that too. Yeah, third, you... third, because we right. recorded <gasps> a yet unaired episode of The Incomparable together That's too. Right. We did Ms. Marvel and The Incomparable and now this. So, oh my gosh, this is the greatest crossover man ever as far as I'm concerned. Me, I think so too. Uh, so Lisa, who are you? Who? <laughs> I see that you start off with a softball question. <laughs> I do. I do. And I love the answers. So no pressure. Uh, I, I guess in no particular order, I'm somebody who has been on computers since the early 80s and actually went to computer camp. So that, that should put an age to it. I'm so and, jealous. Um, went to two different universities with Polytechnic in the name, which is another way of burnishing the bona fides. Uh, and then bounced from school into the dot-com revolution, wrote a couple web development books, exited the dot-com, and I have been working as a technology journalist or a business journalist since, and a pop culture critic since 2000. I'm currently the editor-in-chief of Windows Supersite. I'm the um, Generations columnist for Macworld, and I am a frequent incomparable, uh, the incomparable contributor, and I host the Flash Flashcast. So I'm really tired talking to you right now. Yeah. yeah. Oh. <laughs> and, you know, raising a child, and... That's right, I do that too. Yeah, like... <laughs> I am exhausted just thinking about everything that you do. Actually, I'm, I'm married to another tech reporter, Philip Michaels, um, recently of Tech Hive, and he's currently at Tom's Guide. So between the, the two of us, we have many shoeboxes of, of old cables and um, adapters that go with nothing. <laughs> we have that here, too. I understand the, the closet full of things that you might need one day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's like they have these really cute carts at Ikea, the rest cog carts. Um, they're kind of metal and industrial, and they come in really cute colors like um, aqua and dark gray. And we have three rest cog carts full of, like, old hard drives and cables and other rando devices downstairs. Nice. And I just tell myself that because everything is corralled, it's, it's therefore organized. <laughs> you know, that works for me. It's, mm-hmm. it's good enough. It's better than it being everywhere, yeah. which is what it does sometimes. Mm-hmm. So one thing I wanted to talk to you about, Mm -hmm. because I know how much you love comic books, 
and I, I am just starting to get into comic books mm-hmm. is comic books yes. um, and yes. your history. Um, I think, well, it's funny because comics are like almost everything else in life where I just kind of fall into it and say, uh-huh. why not? Um, cause that was the same thing with computer camp as my mom was like, we need to send you someplace for a few weeks this summer because you're bouncing off of the walls and I can't take you to the library every day. Aww. And, and I was like, well, why not computer camp? Right. Um, and with comics, oddly enough, same year, 1983. And, um, my brother and I were bouncing around in a drugstore and my mom pushed us towards the, um, the racks of paperback books and magazines and comics. And she's like, all right, each of you can pick up something. And I picked up uncanny X-Men annual number five. And, um, it literally lodged itself on my cerebral cortex and has not moved since. Cause in that comic, you have Sue Storm and Aurora Monroe heading up a rescue mission for a bunch of dumb men who have gotten, you know, kidnapped by a race of lizard aliens. Kitty Pride is in it as well, um, in one of her first adult outings with the team. And she gets her own plot line where she's, you know, clever, innovating things. And there's a little bit of romance. So, like, Kitty and um, Colossus are like my one true pair. And, <laughs> like, to, to give some con- con- contrast, because I'm Gen X, I'm firmly in the middle of Generation X, like, previously princess leia was pretty much it for for awesome nerdy ladies who could kick butt mm-hmm. and so like reading this book which i ha- i kept for years and with thumb through until it finally fell apart to see um women and men and girls and boys being treated as equals when they had their adventures and powered off and did things as opposed to you know girls having to be rescued by the hardy boys or having just one princess like the fact that there was more than one woman in the comic book was mind-blowing enough but like the story was just so great. And as luck would have it, the early to mid eighties coincided with a really fertile period with the X-Men. And there were books that rolled out that were primarily girls, like the new mutants and things like that, where it was a junior X-Men team with were led by girls and more girls than boys on the team. And again, they had awesome adventures. And so that was kind of the comics world I grew up in. And it was a shock like when the nineties happened and, all of a sudden it was like burly men with, with pouches on their waist. Um, <laughs> Rob Liefeld, look him up. <laughs> but, you know, I've been a pretty faithful reader of comics since like 1983 and, and, you know, kind of bounced back and forth and found really cool books that uh, sort of confirmed the, the worldview that you can have, again, dynamic teams that are, in, you know, egalitarian or you can have girls that are off having adventures that completely pass the Bechdel test or you can have stories that are just really insanely beautiful and deep at the same time you know it's not always about capes yeah I've been um surprised I think pleasantly surprised because you know like I think a lot of people who aren't deep into comics I I I think of the the big the big men that we see you know we see Mm -hmm. Batman and Spider-Man and Superman and someone else man like iron man you know like it's it's all these burly guys and wonder woman one wonder woman it's like a model minority in comics where she's beautiful and she's perfect and she's a princess and she can fly and she has a lasso and that can be really i i feel like that sends the message that you can have the girl in the story like that's always been my my um Mm. that's always been my problem with you know sci-fi ensembles where they have the girl on the, mm-hmm. on the on the space station or the girl on Starfleet. But if you dig around, there have been people who've been doing some really cool stuff since forever. Uh, it's just harder. And um, I have friends who are not into comics at all who, when, when they read, like, I would hand them Wild Last Man and be like, you have to read this. Um, 
just because it's an interesting premise and it's fun to see a book that's basically all women and one guy who's like everything I know about how the world works has been completely flipped upside down and uh it was interesting watching people and I had to do it too, kind of struggle with their own idea of what comics and storytelling should be like Mm -hmm. versus what happens when it is actually a story where the men are very deliberately, you know, the man or, you know, not present at all, like to see how people struggle to connect with it or try to figure out what makes it feel so different to them, even if the themes are still the same. Yeah. Like I I gave a boyfriend a mixtape one time that was nothing but female artists and he, he played it and he was like, wait, this is so weird. There's no guys on here. <laughs> huh. Imagine that. I'm like, why is that weird? I have been the recipient of dozens of mixtapes with no women on them, you know? Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, that's part of why I like, uh, you know, I follow some cosplay blogs, even though I'm not a cosplayer, because I like seeing the gender bent um, cosplayers yeah. with, you know, I don't know, like the the woman who's Malcolm Reynolds and the... <laughs> you know the the female iron female Jane iron wing. <laughs> I I don't know. That's an interesting question. I don't see the Jane hat as much as I used to. No, no. Yeah, um, my girlfriend who wore it in all of her as her social media icon like that went away and has not come back. Um, yeah, the I'm not. I admit I'm not to cosplay. I like you can barely work up the excitement over um, Halloween. But I do love, one of the things I do love about comic book fandom, and that has stretched out to some TV fandoms as well, is how people will take it and make it theirs. Mm -hmm. Um, One of my favorite things on the web is the Hawkeye Initiative, where, um, and it was started by, uh, it was founded by, among other people, Noelle Stevenson, who was the creator of Nimona and Lumberjanes, which are both- Love Nimona. Yes. And um, so basically it was like, what would happen if you drew Hawkeye in all of the ridiculous poses that women are in in the comics, you know, like butt out or mm-hmm. flying boobs first or things like that. And the art is hilarious and funny, and it does a great job of pointing out just how ridiculous it is. And um, it's a great way of people taking fandom and making it making it theirs, I think, and saying it doesn't have to be just this way. It can, you know, we can like these characters and we can bring this perspective to it and we can force other people to take a look at why the predominant and prevailing perspective is one that deliberately marginalizes people. Yeah. And it's, they're kind of hilarious. <laughs> yeah. I forgot. Um, I'll have to look this up. There was a, like a poster of the Avengers where and I can't even remember if it was Avengers one or Avengers two, where like basically everybody was in combat ready position, except for Scarlett Johansson, who was, you know, like butt to the camera, cat suit on, looking very alluring, and somebody did like a photo a photo manipulated version where it was all the all the male adventures, you know, completely on display while she she is getting ready to deliver a world of hurt to somebody, and it's, it was just it was a thing of beauty. I um, I was like, oh, this is beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah, and it's it's interesting to see the people who are like, yeah, this is this is not okay, guys. Guys would never do that, and it's like. Mm, pretty sure most women don't stand in that position either ever yeah there's yeah are you familiar with kate beaton who does hark a vagrant i am not she does a, a she's an illustrator a canadian illustrator who does a comic called hark a vagrant and um a lot of her comics are very funny and very sharp like one of her one of my favorites is her um 
and and Anne of Cleves of Green Gable, where it's the idea that you know Anne of Cleves is essentially Anne of Green Gables, and so like you see her clinging to Cromwell's arms. I'm confident we'll be bosom friends. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and um, she's taken on superhero culture a few times, and there was a pinup somebody did of um, Mary Jane, uh, you know Peter Parker's girlfriend, where she's laying on her back with her legs walked up a wall, and yet improbably like her breasts are 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 you know. Not nearly suffocating her around Perky, her yeah, right. Yeah, they're incredibly perky. They're staying put. And so she redrew it as, like, okay, this is what it actually looked like. And again, it's like one of my favorite things on the internet because it's just sort of going, oh, okay, look, this is how writing works. This is how, this is how gravity works, okay? Yeah, so yeah. She, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, Kate Beaton, highly recommend her um, for, for just, you know, one panel, one panel jokes. They're very good. <laughs> So you talk mostly, when I've heard you speak anyway, mostly about Marvel and uh, Marvel superheroes. Are you into the DC universe at all? I am. Um, I'll follow writers into the DC universe. Um, I mean, the joke my brother and I have is he grew up DC, I grew up Marvel. So it happens even in the best of households. Um, (laughs) House divided. Yeah, exactly. Although... I digress. It's great when we visit each other because we basically spend the whole trip just kind of passing comic books back and forth. Like, you have to read this. You have to read this. And um, I liked, I, I tried to get into DC to the same extent as Marvel back um, when they did the 52 event. And one of the reasons was um, Gail Simone had just launched into the Birds of Prey run, and Gail Simone is my favorite writer in comics. And over the course of her Birds of Prey run, she basically took this idea, which is, what happens if you take a couple of the B-string uh, DC Universe ladies, like um, Black Canary and Oracle, you know, who used to be that girl before terrible things happened, and um, Huntress and Power Girl and Vixen and, you know, other women we can't, we, we only put in the Justice League when someone tells us we need more women in this ship. Right. Like, what happens if instead you have an information broker who hires out these women for, for jobs? And over the course of the series, like, Gail Simone managed to single-handedly rehab, like, more than half a dozen characters and give them really great backstories and really strong, plausible, heart, heart-rending friendships. Um, so they bounced her over to Wonder Woman, you know, understandably so, because Wonder Woman is one of their marquee properties. Mm-hmm. But Birds of Prey kind of spiraled down after that into nothingness. And I didn't like what they did with, 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 my, with my friends, <laughs> <laughs> which is what it felt like. Um, right. And I will still read Green Green Arrow from time to time because he's always been my favorite. But I think the overall ethos of Marvel is just something I, I tend to resonate with more. Um, I've always seen Marvel as being a little bit more um, FX and um, DC Comics as being a little bit more USA. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, to, to it's not a perfect mapping, but DC... Um, tends to be very invested in the mythos and their characters are almost like unto gods and they're very virtuous. And um, Marvel is interested, perhaps a little too interested sometimes, in exploring the foibles and the flaws that make these people interested. Right. So I've always been interested in watching people be try to be their best despite themselves as opposed to being their best because that's simply who they are. Well, it's relatable, right? Like. Yeah. You know, oh, he's going to be perfect again. Why don't I read that? That's, oh, okay. I mean, I argued strenuously for Superman this summer in our our bracketology because I think, um, I think there's a lot of power in in what he stands for. Like, I think there's a lot to respect about it. 
And I admire how um, he really hasn't been changed at all, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, basically he wants to be his best. But at the same time, it's worth pointing out that Marvel had a lot of, a lot more women out there a lot earlier. It was a lot more relatable to me than the uh, Justice League of the 80s was. Yeah. And I think even, oh, and to go back just a little bit, the bracket that you're referring to is, was the summer superhero spectacular that the incomparable did. I do not know why it was amazing to listen to, but um, where I don't, I don't even know how many episodes it was for four or six episodes. (laughs) I bet it does where they did like, like a sports bracket and they pitted one superhero against another and argued about who was better or who was worse. And um, I won't spoil who came out the winner, but. Well, that happened. um, And I like, I'm not sure. I'm going to take credit for the original idea. <laughs> Do it. Well, no, yeah, because way back when, um, Phil and I used to have to commute between Los Angeles and San Francisco because for a couple of years we had jobs in each city. One of us was in one city, one of us was in the other, and we'd bounce back and forth. And I don't know how many people are familiar with driving the I-5 from Los Angeles to San Francisco, but it goes right through some of California's least scenic, most awful agricultural country. I mean, we're just talking like acres of cattle. You can't, it's awful. Yeah. And so to divert ourselves one time, because um, Phil is a major sports nerd and I'm a major comics nerd, I'm like, all right, let's do a bracketology, DC versus Marvel. Um, our, our first iteration was first the DC people had to narrow it down to one, then the Marvel people had to narrow it down. And then we'd have the DC champion, you know, the one seed fight the Marvel one seed or whatever. And so that's how we ended up arguing about Batman versus Wolverine for like an hour. In the <laughs> but, you know, I... The bracketology thing has always made sense because there's so many different characters who have so many different iterations and combinations and have their own weaknesses. And it's always fun to be like, well, what if they do this? Or what if they do that? Like, and the beauty of bracketology is you can apply it to so many things. Like, I honestly think you could do bracketology for, like, the Tudor court. And then, well, you know, if you, right. if you, put, if you put Anna Cleves up against, uh, <laughs> against Mary Boleyn, who has the best survival skills? <laughs> the one who came out alive. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. yeah. They both did okay. Like Mary got a castle and got a castle. They both stayed away from the court after a while, counted their blessings. <laughs> As you do after. Um, Henry. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, yeah so uh, going back to Marvel versus DC, that's where I was going. It, it, is, it also seems to me as kind of an outsider looking in um, mm-hmm. that Marvel is much more progressive than DC is. You know, DC's had famously at least in my circles over the summer shirts like a uh, future wife of superman or superman's yeah. future wife or something on sh- on shirts for little girls yeah. and you know I'm, I'm not saying marvel's perfect marvel definitely like their toy line for the avengers they're leaving they're leaving black widow out black widow out of like a lot of marketing stuff and that is hugely problematic it's it's so weird okay um you've hit a hot button topic for let's me. do it <laughs> Um, rant, rant if you need to (laughs) catharsis Yes, but you know to break it down to several parts um, let's start with the premise that the comics are the source material Um, I think your assessment is not necessarily wrong to its credit DC has done some fairly noteworthy things like they called out the hypocrisy of um, they called out the hypocrisy of the DC universe actually in the the late 60s when um, a black character called out Green Lantern with, look, you are always fighting for the rights of space aliens, but you guys have not done a thing for me. And um, it was really bold to put that in comics at the time. 
So they have done that on occasions. I'm sure there's more, but I'm not as familiar with the DC history. Mm. So I can't cite those. But you're right in that Marvel um, – I mean, they've done some cynical things, like the launch of Luke Cage was basically, oh, black exploitation is the thing, let's get on it. But Marvel has made a, a, a real effort to, um, to, to, to build a universe that's not just white and male and straight, or white and male and alien and straight, or, um, you know, they've, 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 they've consistently loaded the roster, and they can be accused of other, othering and exoticizing things like... Um, you know, Aurora Monroe, you're from Africa, so you're exotic. Like, that was a thing for a while, and it was kind of offensive and awful. Um, or rather, I should say very offensive and awful. Yeah. And they have to keep rehabbing that character to do it. But, you know, the X-Men has given them perpetual opportunity, which they've always taken, to try to address social issues and to try to bring in characters that would otherwise not have a voice in comics. Like, the X-Men of the 80s that I read had several First Nations members, um, it had several, you know, women from different backgrounds, poor, rich, black, white, Asian. Um, it, you know, the X-Men also had several Asian members. They had Latino members. Um, they were not terribly progressive when it came to gay rights or, or gay members, unfortunately. But I think they're finally getting there now. Um, I think DC is a little bit ahead of that. Yeah, that's especially with Batwoman. Yeah. And um, Gail Simone actually has a plot line in um, Secret Six which focuses on two, you know, super villainesses who desperately love each other. Um, so, you know, I, I think because Marvel's more rooted in royale politic, they have used um, the op- they, they've used that, that approach to, to pull in current event stuff and diversity. And I think in DC, they're, they may have been a little bit more careful about how it would play with the overall mythos. Mm. And since so many of their origin stories are rooted really firmly in very classical, very white, male, heterosexual, classical canon type stuff, it's, it's been a, a different cultural change. That said, um, if you want to talk merchandise, um, I have huge bones to pick with both of them. Because mm. um, I do have a small daughter. She's five. And she loves Spider-Woman. Like, she loves Jessica Drew. Um Jessica Drew can fly, and Jessica Drew is strong. Jessica Drew fights crime, and she's mixed with spiders, which are our friends. And um, I cannot find Jessica Drew merch for love or for money. You know, I mean, it's it is amazing to me that Marvel is so willing to walk away from um, mm-hmm. from basically creating creating tiny consumers who will grow up and grow into this stuff. And the explanation that I've read in several places is because. They're owned by Disney. Disney's attitude is we already have the, the, the princesses. Girl, yeah, their attitude is we've got the little girl dollar locked up. So we bought Marvel to lock up the little boy dollar. Little boys will only play with little boy superheroes, whereas little girls will play with little girls and little boys. That's the conventional wisdom. Um, to which I say, is that why there's a booming Etsy market for this stuff? Right. <laughs> and, yeah. And um, when my daughter brought in her 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 DC, you know, her her my little people, because I she has my little people for both Wonder Woman and Batwoman because a Batgirl, because Batgirl was her thing for a while before Spider-Woman. Um like she and the boys just threw down and played and there's no problem. The boys like to read her DC like little golden books because there's like an adventure of Wonder Woman and Batgirl and there's like an ABCs that's got like the the women of the DC universe. Marvel doesn't reach out as effectively to younger women or, or I should say the little girls. Like I have a my first reader about the Black Widow, which we can get into in like a year or two which she's reading. But like, there's no golden books. There's, um, there's, there's the board books are, are not there. And 
it's what, what I really object to is that both companies are perpetuating this idea that only little boys are allowed to wear a t-shirt with their favorite heroes logo on it. Only little boys are allowed to have the dolls to play with that are Captain America or Superman or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like one woman who is, who is Wonder Woman and that's it. Maybe there's Batgirl every once in a while. Um, and on the Marvel side, there's just nothing. Like, you know, we saw them erase Black Widow from, from our eyes this summer. Like, and Gamora last year. Yeah. And, um, you know, if and when they look at Ant-Man merchandise, and I don't know if they have, I haven't looked very hard, they're not going to have the Wasp. Um, it's really demoralizing to think that, you know, I would love my daughter to love this visual medium. I'd love her to get excited about the movies. But, you know, there's nothing for her to play after play with afterwards. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just a huge disappointment because I'm like, don't I count as a fan? You know, don't you want, don't you want little girls as your fans too? You know, Disney's done a great job of growing the princess franchise all the way through weddings at this point. Like there, there are literally articles about it where people get Walt Disney engagement rings with, you know, mm-hmm. modeled after the famous princess. They have wedding dress. They have a wedding dress line. Exactly. Yeah. So like, why can't you launch a parallel, like, from kindergarten to college for, for girls where, you know, they, they do have the binders with, you know, like, like black canary on them. And as they get older, there's, you know, YA novels about the birds of prey or, you know, why can't you do it with the X-Men? It's, it's, it's really irritating. Yeah. It, well, and, and it's the same as, you know, when I was little, we had Lisa Frank and, you know, but I wasn't a girly girl. I'm, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a girly woman. You know, I don't, I don't do a lot of the things that women are supposed to do. I don't wear makeup. I don't fix my hair every day. I don't do like a lot of these things that we're supposed to do. And Disney princesses never really appealed to me. I was never like, you know, I remember really liking Belle's yellow dress in mm-hmm. Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. And like, that was about it. I was never interested in pretending I was Belle, you know, because I knew I was going to grow up and go to college and, and, and get a job and be smart somewhere. And that's not to say that Disney princesses don't do that, but that's not how they're marketed. Yeah, this is... I saw Star Wars for the first time when I was in kindergarten because, again, old and... um I kid you not, our kindergarten classroom went on a field trip to go see it, which blows my mind. <laughs> but like best kindergarten ever. I know, right? But I had to be carried out of every Disney movie prior to that, carried out kicking and screaming and crying. And I can remember playing as a little girl and just being like, even as a four or five year old, I was just really disgruntled by um like Land of the Lost, where, oh, Holly cowers while other people take on dinosaurs. I can remember feeling really disgruntled by that. And then when I saw Star Wars, it is not an exaggeration to say that Princess Leia blew my mind. Mm -hmm. Because when you first see her, she is busy, coolly and calmly, like sticking some intelligence in a droid, giving it directions, facing off against a dictator, accepting her fate. And then when she finally gets rescued, she doesn't simper, she doesn't swoon, she doesn't clean anybody's house. She starts giving orders again. Yep. And what's even more miraculous is the guys take the orders with a minimum of eye rolling. And um, this was huge, like phenomenal huge. And so from like a very small age, it was pretty much what would Leia do, <laughs> you know? Um, and um, what is a little dispiriting is that for my daughter, um, and I should add, there was no princess culture in the 70s and 80s. Like, that's actually a fairly recent invention. Mm-hmm. But for my daughter, it's like water. She swims in it. Right. Um, and, 
she and her friends all have little princesses that are basically their play avatars. And granted, their princesses do things like solve crimes and go on adventures. And for a while, they were a league of assassins where they hunted down and poisoned wrongdoer. Wow. Oh, it's the greatest play ever because they're like, we take the bad guys out. (laughs) (laughs) And, And that's great. But like, they see it as absolutely normal that each of them would pick a princess and do that. And I was like, well, why don't they have that option to each pick an X-Men? Yep. Or why don't they have that option to each pick a bird of prey? Yep. You know, um, why is it that the boys in their class can say things like superheroes are for boys? And like, I have to be like, no. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's weird because femininity is so commercialized, like from such an early age. And like, it was one thing to be like, oh, sure is and be an adult with my own independent consumer choices and things like that and then to watch like even the selection of picking out baby clothes and then picking out toys and having to question everything with what is the message this is sending what is my daughter going to come and ask me about or what is she going to internalize that I find out about later like that has been my opener yeah I can't I can't even imagine you I watch um all of my friends have girls I've said that on the show before like so far, none of my friends have had boys. And so um, and I, we're not planning on having kids. So I'm watching these girls grow up and um, like the different ways that they're raised and uh, the different. Yeah, just the different things that they come up with and say to me, it's 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 uh, it's problematic. Yeah. It's very problematic. I mean, it's it helps that in our cohort. We have a mom, one mom who's an architect. There was another one who got her PhD in pharmacology and was a researcher. And, and by and large, um, there's enough different examples of working women and working parents, too, where the girls just are like, well, why not? You know, why not me? Why can't, why can't I be a doctor who's also a sous chef or, or what have you? But, you know, I should add, I also live in a really liberal bubble in the Bay Area. Um, and I don't even know what it would be like in other parts of the country where like I had a girlfriend who's, you know, whose baby shower gift was like a little camo dress. Mm. And I was like, why can't the child just wear a regular camo onesie? She's like, because she's a girl. I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) And um, it's amazing how quick we are to impose commercial gender constructs onto our children. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. And it's, it's a little dispiriting to see that, you know, in nerd culture as well. And, um, that's actually something that I've been giving a lot of thought to when it comes to things like games and gaming and um, what kind of apps, what kind of apps my kids are, you know, my, my daughter's playing or what kind of apps her peers are playing, both boys and bo- both boys and girls. Cause when they're young and teeny and tiny, it's, it's, Oh, here's an app that teaches you, or here's an app where you can build things or here's an app where you're in the kitchen cooking or, you know, the, the Toka apps especially are really great cause they're very gender neutral. Um, like they have a Toka house cleaning app where it's like five roommates and they're all like indeterminate gender and age. <laughs> and, and that's great. But what I'm wondering about is in a couple of years when we're in elementary school, like if, um, if we're going to see almost like a, a glass ceiling in the sense that the boys are going to have a set of games that they play and go and they'll have this whole line of, of digital conventions that they are able to internalize and use as a, as a shibboleth with one another while the girls will have completely different experiences because their games will be about sharing and social and, 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 you know, doing hair mm-hmm. or whatever. And I, I worry that, you know, if we gender the digital experiences these kids have when they're tiny, um, you know, by the time they're adults, if, 
how will they rank? Will they be equivalent or will the, will the cultures be so different that one will be inherently presented as other than oppositional to the, to, 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 to the first one? Yeah, I think about that too, especially uh, with Lego. Um, I've yeah. ranted a lot <laughs> about the Lego friend sets um, and just like conversations with my mom, because like I said, I wasn't a girly girl. I played, I played Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and I, you know, I looked for bugs in the, in the garden. And, you know, I, I was not, you know, I didn't, I didn't like pink. It's only been in the last couple of years that I'm like, Oh, you know, pink's an okay color. I can do that. But like pink was for girls and I was really disdainful of it until like my late twenties. And, um, but I've had these conversations with my mom about like, I had, I had like boy oriented toys. I had Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and, um, that's the big thing I remember. And I had Lego and I had, I had building things that were for boys. And was that because toys weren't as gendered? Yes. If you pardon the interruption. Yeah, for, go for it. Um, I read an email newsletter. It's on hiatus right now because, you know, day job and things have been crazy. Mm-hmm. But in the email newsletter, I looked at this, it's called gender contamination. And, um, it, really began picking up steam the idea began picking up steam in the 80s when toy manufacturers and other retailers began realizing that they could effectively um they could effectively sell more stuff if they began selling it with the message that this is for boys only or this is for girls only and this was absolutely not a thing in the 70s and early 80s this is something that only gained currency from the middle of the 80s on and has been you know really invidiously effective because um, my daughter uses a lot of my, my old toys because my mom saved them. And it's basically Fisher Price Little People um, and the Sesame Street sets and stuff like yeah. that. Um, the little blocks. barn house. Yes, the barn house, bristle blocks, Lincoln logs. Yep. Um, you know, and she's got some really nice wooden blocks from um, a place called Haba. And um, she got her first Lego set from her, her cousins, who are boys, who were super excited to give it to her because they were like eight and ten. And they got her like a little pink princess castle set because they're like, well, she's a girl and she likes Legos. And I thought, you know, when I played with Legos in the 80s, it was just one big set. And mm-hmm. there was red and green and yellow and white and blue mm-hmm. and like brown. <laughs> and, and part of the fun was like figuring out how to put those parts together, too. But, yeah, toys are so relentlessly gendered at this point. Um you really have to work hard to find toys that are not gendered and they often cost more. And so what I object to as well is the idea that to raise a child without strict external gendered identity, you have to pay a financial premium. Right. And um, I'm like, this, this benefit, and I'm like, this locks in all sorts of privilege because the people who can and do pay the premium are the same ones who are going to be able to, you know, give their, their boys and their girls messages like it's okay for boys to, you know, be nurturers and stay home or it's okay for girls to go into engineering and create, you know, technologies that will help children in the third world do their homework after dark. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you are in a socioeconomic strata where you can't afford that, you know, you're either inadvertently or deliberately reinforcing a gendered experience. And that can also change the messages you're giving your kids about the domestic and professional roles that they're expected to play too. Yep. Yep. It's just, it's, uh. <laughs> and I've also thought about, you know, because I've been very poor, like I have been, I grew up very poor and I am fortunate to not be very poor now, you know, and I, I fully recognize that, but I think about how much when you're very poor, how much time and energy you spend just getting by 
Like yeah. you don't have, or I didn't have the energy to question things about gender norms and, and yeah. what messages a child was being sent by whatever toy. And, um, you know, the, it, it's just, you're surviving. No, it's down to time. It's down to resource management, which is incredibly cognitive, cognitively intense. Yeah. And there's, and there's all that research now on decision fatigue, how your brain only has the capacity to make so many decisions per day. And then after that, you lose the capacity to make good decisions. Your, your brain literally tires out. And if you are somebody who doesn't have a lot of money and you have a list of, of unrelenting demands from a job that has really strict check-in, check-out times, like I don't think a lot of people realize how many people in America are working jobs where they are required to clock in at a certain time and clock out at another time. And if they don't hit it on the minute, they're going to hit, they're going to get a financial penalty. Yep. I remember working at Walmart and being 90 seconds early to the time clock mm -hmm. and people just standing around it, waiting for it to tick over because yeah. they would get written up if they clocked out 60 seconds early. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's incredibly, there's that, and then you, you combine that with um, a public transit infrastructure, and I use infrastructure in air quotes because, you know, our country is huge and geographically and culturally diverse in a lot of ways, but we don't have any, so there's not going to be a one-size-fits-all model for public transit, but the fact of the matter is in this country, it's very hard to use public transit to run your life unless yep. you have time to burn. Yep. And, you know, you're looking at people who have to hustle between one or two jobs and try to try to manage their kids' school schedules on top of that. There's all, there are all of these decisions. Do you stop for groceries on the way home or, or would you miss the bus? If you stop for groceries on the way home, maybe you can save two bucks because something's on special. But if you miss the bus, you can't catch the next one for another 45 minutes. And if you do that, your kid has to let themselves in again. What if they get into the SpaghettiOs you're saving for another day? Yep. You know, it's just this cascading decision tree. And it's hugely hugely resource intensive for people's thinking. Um, and it's just, Oh God, ooh, we, we hit people coming and going in this country sometimes. Yeah, we do. We yeah. absolutely do. Yeah. And it, it's, it's not to get political. I'm extremely mm -hmm. liberal, but it's just getting worse. Yeah, it is. And, um, we don't provide people the resources that they could use in order to use if you have a workforce that's not persistently stressed and exhausted, like think of what they'd be capable of doing. Yeah. You know, like by not investing more in, in the things that make people's lives run more smoothly, we really are hurting long-term productivity in this country. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway, sorry, hot, hot button issue. Um, I do some work with um, local shelters and food banks on that and what people have to scramble for just to get month to month from everything from diapers to sanitary products to food. It's just ridiculous. Like people who are whining that I don't have an Amazon service that only takes and that takes an hour to deliver something. Like, no, you have no idea. Right. <laughs> your world is like space. Your world is like outer space. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I hear about, so I grew up in the country um, so like the concept of urban food deserts was really a shocking thing to me because it was like, yeah, we have to drive 45 minutes to get groceries because that's where the nearest grocery store is. And I thought, you know, little country bumpkin, I thought the cities were better, but they're almost exactly the same, except, yeah. you know, it's, it's just, um, 
having access to to nutritious, inexpensive food is extremely difficult for most people. Um, having the money to pay for it is another barrier. And, you know, people are like, why are they eating at McDonald's? Well, they could eat at McDonald's for, you know, off the dollar menu or they could get an insure at the convenience store. Yeah. And, you know, oh. And the insure tastes terrible. Oh, it's awful. Yeah, and um, it comes down to calorie loads too. If you have kids who are growing, it is easier to feed. It is easier to buy a twenty-piece McNugget and split it between two kids. That's going to be cheaper, and they're going to get protein, and they're they're not going to be hungry that night. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, this is one of the areas that um, one of the the well, and this is really it's a balsa wood cross to bear. But one of the challenges of being in San Francisco is is, is a whole lot of oh. This startup's going to change lives. This startup's going to disrupt this. And I'm like, you know what would be really disruptive? You know what would be fantastically disruptive? Is, is making sure that we have a, a, a supplemental breakfast and lunch system for every kid 12 months a year. You know, maybe an app that notifies kids where they can go to a food truck to pick up tasty, nutritious food on the go. <laughs> right. When they're, why don't you work on that? Or, you know, why don't you try to disrupt the WIC process so so that it isn't something where people have to burn oh. eight hours standing in line? Um, you know, it's it's uh I feel like technology has done a great job of of replicating the role of someone's mother. And when you think about it, that's pretty much the exemplar of 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 the current tech privilege is I can pay things to do things, people to do things for my mom used to do. Um but it's also it's tremendously disrespectful of time as a whole. You know, it basically conflates time with money and it devalues that time in a way saying, I am rich enough to be able to nickel and dime your time and you are in no position to, to do otherwise. And I, I find that deeply distressing that we don't respect time. We don't respect labor and attention. These apps make it so frictionless for consumers. They really have no idea what sort of human effort or time goes into the labor that makes them comfortable. Oh, no. Oh no! People are going to be running into you like all this. I didn't sign on to a communist podcast daily. <laughs> this is yeah, for it's, it's paradoxical because we yeah. have this, oh, it's a maker economy, and I'm like, you know, only in a limited capacity. But you still can't make human attention, right? And you still can't make human judgment, and you still can't make a bot that's willing to stand in line for something or fill out a form. Like we, it is it is ironic that all these efficiency apps and services have not helped people learn how to respect time as a resource or value it or value labor behind it. You know, a thing that I found myself doing as I have um, obtained more privilege and fallen into more privilege is, um, is evaluating my time. Like, is it worth my time to return this $10 item to Amazon? Like I make X, Y, Z an hour. Um, so if I, you know, go through, take five minutes to fill out all the stuff on Amazon, print out the thing, find a package, package this up, yeah. go by the UPS place to drop it off. Like, is, is it worth my time or should I just like put it in the pile for Goodwill? Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole lot of what is my time worth? And it, um, that bothers me. Um, the only reason I'm going to advocate for it, I lost my dad very suddenly. Um, when right after I got married, and uh, like it was a, it was a car accident, and I lost him very suddenly. And the great wake up call from that was, you know, do I really want to spend my life and my time, which is a limited, mm -hmm. and b 
I don't even know how much I have. All that I know is that it's going to come to an end. And I was like, do I want to use this commodity? How do I want to use this commodity? And so I do kind of, you know, sometimes I'll, I'm like, okay, I'm going to throw money at a problem because I just don't have the time to, to, to bottom it out. Um, and that was actually like a, a big point of clarity where, you know, like I saw how my dad had spent his life and I saw the people who traveled to, you know, come to his funeral and took the, and took time to be with us and comfort us. And I was like, all right, here's the difference between a well-lived life and when it's not, it just comes down to how you choose to spend your time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I do try to do the metric with, with time where there's, is it worth my money or is it worth a long-term payoff? Um, and it's great for shedding stuff you don't want to do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't have time for this. It's like one of my favorite ways to just dismiss something and move on to the next thing. <laughs> This is um, true. But at the same time, um, it has been a very conscious process to realize that I also owe it to you know, like humanity as a whole to try to respect other people's time and labor. Yeah. You know, because their time is just as valuable as mine is. And I think there's a little bit of privilege in that, too, where you're like, oh, and, and I've joked with people that, you know, really rich people are not necessarily people who have high net worth. They are the people who can waste other people's time without consequence. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Cause, um, what I, what I've always noticed is whenever you have to, I've, I've interviewed plenty of CEOs and it is fascinating. The corporate kabuki that goes around and how you get pinged by some poor person five or six times and they can meet with you this time. No, they can meet with you this time. And it is always abundantly clear that, you know, I'm at the mercy of this other person's schedule. I'm responsible for rearranging all of my obligations around this other person's schedule. It doesn't matter what my deadline is because this other person can tell me yes or no without consequence, whereas I have consequences. And I was like, okay, that's what real power and wealth is in this world, is being able to mess with other people's time without consequence, being able to waste it, and they can't do a thing about it, and you just take it for granted. (laughs) And that's that's a huge amount of privilege, too. Yeah, it's just because you don't even have to think about them either. You know, you're just like, whatever, they'll... they'll, Yeah, they'll just... Yeah. Yeah. I am important. I will, Mm -hmm. yeah. I really don't care if this inconveniences you. <laughs> and that, and again, it goes back to the whole service-based economy when people, that the whole gig economy where I'm going to have somebody clean my house when I hit task rabbit, or I'm going to have someone do this or do that. And it's a little tiny bit of that where you're like, you're going to jump because I hit a button. Mm-hmm. You know, this makes my life easier. Jump. <laughs> Ugh, it's sad. Yeah. Like I said, we, we're getting divorced from um, labor. Mm-hmm. And um, what I find interesting is as more and more, as more and more of this happens, there's been such a resurgence in DIY stuff. Like, you know, people who are like, well, I make my own granola or, you know, I make my, well, for example, I do make my own jam. Um, but there, you know, there's all this, you know, I, I can, and I garden and I do this and I do that. And that's really taken on some status where, where, you know, culturally speaking, where there are people who, of course they garden, of course they go to the community garden or like, of course they roast a chicken once a week. And, um, I find it fascinating that, this has risen in tandem with um, the almost sociopathic disregard for other people's mortality (laughs) that has, has, you know, come up with the gig economy as well. You know, and it's interesting. I associate these things with Portland as you're talking. I'm like, that's a very Portland (laughs) thing um, because we're thinking about moving there. Um, But I was there, I volunteered with App Camp for Girls over the summer. And so I was there and 
you know, I was with some friends and they were trying to, to get together for a thing. And one of them was like, well, I can't do it this day because um, I'm I'm going to a canning class and I can't do it this day because I'm, I'm going to be like, I don't even remember, like learning mm. how to like ride a motorcycle. And I can't do it this day because I, I'm doing this other, you know, uh, yeah, like making granola, like in bulk and um it, I don't know it's just interesting to me that um yeah it used to be you know we pay to do th- we pay other people for these things we buy the granola and you know that was that was like you can afford to do this that's that's yeah. a great hallmark and now it's like if you can afford the time to do these things that's exactly. a that's a that's a status symbol oh yeah ex- exactly you picked it that's exactly what it is um because if you're like, well, I'm canning things from my garden, this implies that, A, you have access to land, mm-hmm. which is, you know, huge in this day and age. And, B, you have access to the time and resources that go into gardening. And then, C, you know, canning equipment has to go someplace. It's not like you use it every day. So you've got storage for it, too. And then there's the time. And um, there's also – in there's a built-in safety net because for a lot of the people who are taking this stuff up now, it's a point of pride to be like, Oh, I can this. Or I did. I, right. I did. And, but like back when my grandmothers were doing this, like if you messed up the tomatoes, you didn't eat them. Right. It's not like you could go to the store for them. And your family was depending upon that to survive. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and, and there's still parts of the, there's still parts of the country where, where, you know, gardening is what stretches people's food dollar. And um, or provides it entirely, mm-hmm. uh, and you know. But the the recreational, you know, oh, small batch this or or recreational that, or there's the stakes are a lot lower. It's 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 the flaunting of time as a privilege. Yeah. Although you know, I don't think anyone gets into it because like, I would like to show people how much free time I have. I think there are some people whose jobs are unsatisfying to the point where they're like, I feel really disconnected from producing anything. You know, I have a job that relies on me making spreadsheets, so. I want the satisfaction of, of 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 making something from beginning to end and then seeing the results of my labor. I think that's a really big human need for people too. I kind of feel that working mm-hmm. all digitally, um, you know, especially, I don't know, so I, I can get the satisfaction of writing a piece and then seeing it on my screen, but it's mm-hmm. not that much different from my text editor when it's live on a website, you know? Exactly, yeah. Um, it's not like I have a, a book to hold in my hand. So it's all very ephemeral. Do you feel that's why people have gotten so volatile about social media and comments is because we want the proof that people have been paying attention and we did produce something that can be consumed? Yeah, I think so. I also think – so I had a guest um, – probably March or April. His name is uh, Ben Chica and Mm -hmm. he is a PhD candidate in theological studies, I think, but he, um, he, he partnered, maybe I'm getting this all wrong. So listeners go listen, but like Mm -hmm. they they did some studies on um, like some neuroscience on like, the way people's brainwaves change on when they're on social media and the way like epinephrine acts when you get like a like on a thing or someone favorites your tweet or whatever. And it's, you know, there's, there's an actual like neurochemical change that happens um, on social media. And I think that that's part of it is like um, 
I think a lot of people are looking for approval yeah. and, um, and they're looking for the, that kind of like epinephrine hit. Yeah. Um, and I think that too, I think some people like to argue and that's what <laughs> they use social media for. They just, yeah. you know, whether their intent is to be mean or not, they just, they like to get in arguments. And, yeah. um, I think it makes it easy to fulfill kind of the psychological needs that different people have. I think the answer is just to start a podcast where you can talk to people. <laughs> well, I was, I was no, because like one of the most satisfying things about podcasting is the give and take, the real time conversation, and the ability to go back and forth. Mm-hmm. And like, as long as you're not, and, and like the great thing about podcasting is because you never forget that you're talking to another human being, you are a lot less likely to behave despicably, as opposed to when it's just words on a screen to to some nameless, faceless, whatever. I, yeah, I think that's really true. And it's one thing that I love about podcasting and something that I don't know, like that's also kind of weird is is putting yourself out there and talking mm-hmm. and you don't know who's listening. Yeah. And you don't know what people start to learn about you. Yes. Um, there's a set on the Internet I'm not going to name because I, I just uh, but the people on that site pretty much live for um, snarking about people who produce content for a living mm-hmm. or people who produce content pushed out there too. And you get people who are so, um, and it's not a positive connection, but they are just so taken by, by the sheer nerve of this other person exists or whatever, that they will do things like go through and parse everything from a tweet to an Instagram photo, to a blog entry, to a podcast, they'll parse it with a fine tooth comb. And it's like they're FBI profilers, except they're malevolent. Right. <laughs> yeah. They're just creepy. Yeah. And, you know, like you said, podcasting, you do have to be aware of what's out there. Um, I have a girlfriend who has never referred to her children in any um, social media circles by anything other than nicknames. And she will never post photos unless the photos are at least 18 months old. Because her theory is this way, anybody who's stalking her or anybody who's trying to look up things for, for bad intent won't have a current picture of her kids. And they can't, you know, put together the clues and find them. And, you know, I applaud how thoroughly and carefully she thought this through and um from time to time i do have misgivings about how much you could probably learn about my family just from you know casual tweets or things i've mentioned in podcasts but at the same time i really don't feel like fear of harassment is something i should give into mm-hmm. and i feel that as a woman who um you know has been bylined for years and you know in public spaces like I feel like being like, you should be more careful online. It's kind of the 21st century equivalent of what were you expecting wearing that mini skirt? Yep. And so I don't want it to be something where I should be like, oh, I'm sorry, I should have done this. It should be said, no, what the hell is wrong with you? Yep. <laughs> so. Yep. And I, I do this constant battle in my head about mm-hmm. like how much, how much should I share? Like, is this picture going to be identifying enough? Like if I post a picture of the interior of my house, is someone going to be able to like tell yeah. You know, who built my house. Yeah. Or where it is specifically. Right. Yeah, there, there are people who like zap reader that stuff and like, well, I blew this up. And, and like, it reminds me, um, there's a scene and um, I don't know where you are in um, Jessica Jones right now. And I promise this doesn't give them any major plot points, but there's a scene where Kilgrave's like, I had to go through your photos of the magnifying glass to get this not redacted piece of information. And like when he said that, like all of the hair on the back of my neck stomach, because I'm like, holy crap, that's like internet soccer. Crazy. Yep. 
but you know, I mean, I have a, I have a job and so people could easily find me at work or they could find me in a place else. And I guess the way I feel about it is there's probably an attendant risk, but I really feel like the, I really feel like I have a moral obligation to live without fear and to put the focus back on your behavior is not wrong. Your behavior is not right. My, you know, I have a right to exist without worrying about what you're going to do. Yep. So. Amen. Yeah. Well, we'll see how it works for me, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Seems to be doing okay so far. No, no, but like I said, um, you know, I, I, my newsletter got mentioned on the site once, like in a really positive way I would add, but like once it was mentioned, I was like, oh God, now I'm on the radar. And, yeah. um, and so I looked for a while and, you know, I fell off the radar because I'm just not that interesting, I think, but um, they, you know, some people really get fixated and, you know, while well, I looked at public records, I'm like, oh my God, that's the thing that happens. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I think about that. Uh, John Gruber linked to my blog a couple of weeks ago and I did that thing where I, I looked at all of the links, you know, all of the incoming traffic and went back to see who was linking to me and what they were saying. And, um, you know, so <laughs> like, I don't know. It's, it's, it's weird that I felt like I had to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't do that as much. I used to write for a site called Television Without Pity. I wrote for it until it shut down. And, um, I, you know, what's really sad is we're just going to have to spend what it is now because it was like a colossus aside the TV recap landscape for like a decade. And, um, you know, you and I both know TV fans can be really passionately engaged. Mm-hmm. And um, over the course of my time writing there, I had two different sets of posters put up websites about me. And, um, and one of them, it was somebody who really hated me and hated what I was writing recap wise. And it was, I found this out about her by scouring the web. Oh. And, then, and you know, it was actually a fan site about me. It was like, we found this out about her by scouring the web. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and it used to really bug me. Like, and then I found out, well, you know, if it's out there, I can't control how people aggregate it and carry it. And I can't control how people react to me. Mm-hmm. And if I spend all of my time worrying about what other people will do, that's just going to make me unproductive. You're not going to get anything else done. Yeah. Yeah. And like one of my greatest, I mean, the things that tend to drive me, I really love when I can successfully round up and transmit useful information to other people. Like, that's just my core competency. I'd love when I can do that. And if there's something that's keeping me from doing that, then I just don't feel like myself. And so I basically had to say, I can't look at referral links. I can't look at, I can't do searches on my name. I can't look at how people are talking about me because I will let it get to me. So, you know, if, if, if I need criticism, I have, I have people whose value and judgments I trust and I'll I'll ask them. But other than that, you know, eh, no. (laughs) Yep. I'm getting there too. I'm getting there too. It's hard. It took like 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. I've received some unsolicited feedback lately and, you know, I've been like, I disagree with your assessment. And then they, you know. Nothing. Um, Has it been gendered or has it been, you know, like a mix or? Um, I don't think I've received very little feedback. Mm -hmm. People, people get upset because I say that, Gender is still a thing that needs to be talked about in the tech industry or in a lot of geeky spaces. Um, We have Pinterest now. What's your problem? (laughs) Right. Um, I haven't had any attacks because of my gender, but I have had people upset with me because I am still bringing up gender. Because what I have noticed is nothing makes dudes fast, makes men angry at me faster 
And then if I don't immediately modify an opinion or to, to, to fall in line with, it, with what they think or concede that they're right. Um, Cause I'll have someone, well, you should have done X, Y, Z. I'll say, okay, and, you know, thanks for letting me know. And then boom, head explodes. Right. And like, it doesn't fail. Um, I used to, it, it just, it doesn't matter, um, you know, whether it's on a blog or via Twitter or via podcast. Well, you should have done X, Y, Z. Oh, thanks for letting me know. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, there was a dude who used to rate me because when I was recapping a show, oh God, some crime show. And I could not, care. I, I literally like, I really don't care about firearm specs. Like I just can't bring myself to get interested in it or engaged. I'm like, okay, it's a gun. It, you know, right. I don't care what caliber it is or, but some guy got really upset that I mentioned it was, I don't know something. He's like, no, it's this. And it does this and this and this. And I wrote back and said, okay, I really don't care. I'm glad that you do. Thanks for sharing. Bye. And he was livid, like livid. <laughs> I wasn't going to, you know, be like, Oh, I'm so sorry. I made that mistake and it won't happen again. I'm right. like, no, I wrote this cause I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> like explosion in my inbox for five days straight. Oh, jeez. <laughs> uh, you know, it's after a while, you're just like, well, so some dude who likes guns thinks I'm, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, it's interesting to see who, res- who responds to you saying, okay, I hear you. Mm-hmm. Thanks for writing it. Bye. And who is under the impression that because they have written you, you are now obligated to take them up on whatever they're suggesting. Right. Yeah. And that you owe them a response at all. Like mm-hmm. I've ignored yeah. people and they, they write me again and then they mm-hmm. write me again. I'm just like, no, really, I'm, I'm not responding for a reason. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like, I feel like you could probably teach a course, you know, for women who are going to be producers, um, you know, or makers of content, there's probably like a crash course you should teach them. Like, okay. Here's how you're going to have to handle <clears throat> unsolicited feedback here's how you're going to have to handle the expectation that you owe your audience an interaction here's because this is something that i think everybody learns by trial or fire it'd be nice if it was all in one place you know yeah i think part of the the trouble or the difficulty not trouble part of the difficulty with that is that it's so different from everybody for everybody that you know i think there are definitely some guidelines that could go in play, get put in place. But I think part of it is, yeah, it's different for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and then ultimately for me, it's just like, I never know. I, th- I think about scenarios. I'm one of those people who tries to think about everything that could possibly happen before yeah. I make a decision. And yeah. no, I'm, I'm fully in sympathy. With that. <laughs> and it's mm-hmm. problematic sometimes, but yeah. you know, and uh, people think I'm arguing and I'm like, I'm no, I'm not arguing. I just want to make sure that we've really thought about this. Yeah. So you know, can I, can I address that point for just a minute? Yeah. Cause I do the same thing where if somebody floats an idea, I'm like, okay, what about this? What about this? Did you think about this? How about this? And it's not because I'm being adversarial. It's because I genuinely want the idea or the execution to be the best it can possibly be. Like I'm all for, my belief is if you spend like an hour bottoming something out ahead of time, you save yourself like 10 hours of work later. Yep. Like do it right, do it once. And what I found interesting is um, I have gotten feedback in professional environments that this approach is quote unquote adversarial and quote unquote intimidating because it's not me simply smiling and nodding or saying, Oh, I think that's a good idea. It's me going, are you sure about this? How about X, Y, Z? And like the first time I got that feedback, I was gobsmacked because I was like, why would you not want to think it through? Yeah, exactly. Like, why is it a problem that I'm asking these questions? (laughs) 
And um, I had this happen again really recently. And I went to, I have a group, I'm super lucky because I've got a group of women um, I hang out with on a fairly regular basis. And all of us are now in managerial positions or positions where we're responsible for the success of our product or the success of the department. And all of them are like, dude, it's gender policing, you know, you can't take it. And they're like, do not. And because I was like, well, it's my instinct is just to not stop, but I don't know how to do it in a way that will be more palatable. And they're like, you can't. Right. So just, you know, just accept this is going to be a thing. This is not a you problem. You have to fix. This is a way, you know, it's, it's people still have a hard time with women second guessing it. Yep. And I face yeah. that a lot with editing. When I mm-hmm. edit, people are like, okay, here you go. And I don't hand it back to them. Like, like, a, like a check mark and a smiley at the right. top of it. Yeah. yeah. When I, and they're like, well, why are you concerned with comma placement? And, and you know, you, you your suggestion is that I really change the sentence. And yeah, because it'll be better that way. Like, why did you ask me to edit this if you didn't want me to edit it? You know, why didn't you say, well, you confirm that this is good? You know, I don't know. No, writing is also so weird, too, because it's such... Um, it can be such a personal thing yeah. for somebody where there's a lot of my heart and soul. And so I'm like, dude, like the greatest writing teacher I ever had was the one who said, you're never writing for yourself. He's like, it may be gratifying, but you are actually writing for an audience and they're who you have to keep in mind. And a good editor is not going to think about you or your feelings or what you're getting out of the piece. They're going to think about what your audience is getting out of the piece. And they're, they're the audience advocate. Yep. Oh, that's a wonderful way to put it. I think if more writers approach this way where they're like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm doing this, you know, this writing is immensely gratifying. Oh, you're, you know, you're arranging things. Like the ideas are strung together like pearls. It's gorgeous. And I found the perfect turn of phrase and it delights my language here. But like, it's not for me. It's perhaps the best analogy is you're like a, a jeweler stringing a necklace. Like it may be intensely gratifying to create something beautiful and original and new that wasn't there before, but you're not going to wear the necklace. The mm-hmm. necklace is for somebody else. Yep. And so, yeah, but. But yeah, there's, I've gotten a lot of editing pushback too and, and had to be like, you know, you know, I'm not saying your piece is bad, but no one is perfect on the first draft. So. <laughs> yep. The best writers are the ones who are edited. It's yeah. just, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's cough, cough, best-selling authors, cough, cough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Lisa, where can people find you online? Uh, I'm on Twitter under El Schmeiser, and I'm going to assume that you should go to the show notes to find out how Schmeiser is spelled. Absolutely. Always. Uh, yeah. Um, I'm the editor-in-chief of Windows Supersite, and I post things on there. Um, mostly I edit and schedule stuff, but I do post things. Like today, I posted a tech emergency roundup for all the gadgets you need to keep going even through a hurricane. Um, oh, wow. And uh, let's see. I'm on the incomparable a lot. And I do have an email newsletter where I um, take a look at stories that are emerging in the media or things you should be watching because it's a long-term story that's been developing over months or years. It's called So What? Who Cares? And it should be coming back in December. <laughs> I'm on an unannounced hiatus. <laughs> <laughs> Those happen. Oh, yeah, they do. Uh, my, bless my readers. <laughs> You can find the show on Twitter at less than or equal. If you have suggestions for guests or would like to be a guest, go to relay.fm slash LTOE and fill out the contact form. To help spread the word about less than or equal, consider taking a few minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes or just tell your friends about the show. Thanks for listening. Until next time on an internet near you, I'm Aline Sims for less than or equal.